0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the seventh season of Art Curious. Now, before we get started on our latest episode full of art historical goodness, it just makes sense to address all the craziness in the world right now. We're recording this episode in March of 2020. And like many of you, we are in the middle of self-quarantine here due to COVID-19. And at this moment, we are hoping to stick to our release schedule for this spring. But we ask for your patience and kindness if we get a little bit off track. Most important, though, is that we hope that these episodes, which are meant to be evergreen and enjoyed anywhere and at any time, bring you some sort of sense of calm and comfort during these really, really trying days. Just know that we're here for you, and we're still committed to bringing you the unexpected, slightly odd, and strangely wonderful in art history, and we hope that you are doing well. So stay curious, and we'll be back to you soon with rescheduled events and more really exciting news. Thanks for listening. This season of the Art Curious podcast is brought to you by our sponsor AnchorLight. Please visit anchorlightraleigh.com to learn all about their artist residency programs, exhibitions, and more. For most people, there's a list of artists you might be able to rattle off if pressed to name them off the top of your head: Picasso, Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, maybe even Andy Warhol or Claude Monet, and that's fine. As an art historian, I don't expect everyone to know a phone book's worth of artists. And granted, the names of famous musicians or current movie stars are probably more at the forefront of our minds than painters from long ago. But it's easy to note that name recognition does go a long way. People know the names of the artists that they know. And while that seems a little bit obvious, such lists also highlight what many of us don't know. A huge treasure trove of talented artists from decades or centuries past that might not be household names, but still have created incredible additions to the story of art. It's not a surprise that many of these individuals represent the more diverse side of things, too. Women, people of color, different spheres of the social or sexual spectrums. So this season on the Art Curious Podcast, we're doing something a little different. We're choosing some fascinating artists whose names and works you might not know. Some people think that visual art is dry, boring, lifeless. But the stories behind those paintings, sculptures, drawings, and photographs are weirder, crazier, or more fun than you can imagine. In season seven, we're uncovering the coolest artists you don't know, beginning with a famed painter known and lauded in her own day, but little discussed outside of art history college courses or the occasional museum exhibition. Welcome to the wonderful life and work of Angelica Kaufman. This is the Art Curious Podcast. Exploring the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history, I'm Jennifer Dassel. We've discussed some awesome women in the past on the Art Curious podcast, most notably Sophonisba Anguissola in episode 20, Elizabeth Vigée-Lebrun and Adelaide labille guillard in episode 37, and of course, Vigée-Lebrun on her own in episode 3, as well as Artemisia Gentileschi, the Baroness Elsa von Freytag-Loringhoven, Lee Krasner, and Elaine de Kooning, among others. And while each are incredible in their own right, I think it's safe to say that Angelica Kaufman has them beat pretty early on. By the age of 12, Angelica already had a number of bishops and nobles sitting for her portraits, forming a clientele that would normally require any reputable portress decades to build. Born in Chur, Switzerland in October 1741, Kaufmann was, to say the least, a child prodigy. Not only because she was an immensely talented painter, but also a multilingualist with fluency in at least German, French, Italian, and English, and was a promising musician with a potential future as an opera singer. In fact, there seems to have been an early preteen struggle as she attempted to choose between her top passions of painting and singing. But after a priest informed her that the opera was a world filled with quote seedy people unquote, she jumped ship musically and threw her attention into the visual arts. Angelica began painting at an early age, and if you've listened to Art Curious in the past, then you probably already know who taught her to paint. Her father, Joseph Johann Kaufmann. He was the first person to train her, and although he himself was rather limited both in talent and success, he did play an instrumental role in her artistic development because it was he who truly exposed her to the arts. She often accompanied him on his travels, assisting him on various commissioned projects throughout Italy and Austria, And having the opportunity to travel so frequently enabled the young Angelica not only to experience new environments, but to meet and engage with like-minded artists along the way. And it was Italy where Angelica was most inspired. After the sudden death of Angelica's mother, Cleofia, in 1754, however, things slowed down a bit. She and her father moved to his hometown of Schwarzenberg, Switzerland, and it was there that she began her career in earnest, scoring commissions for portraits and projects for the local church. Slowly but surely, Kaufman saved her hard-earned money with the intention of using the funds to support not only her family, but her eventual return to Italy. After five years in Schwarzenberg, she had saved up enough to head back to the Italian peninsula. Angelica Kaufman first immersed herself in Milan before moving on to Florence, where she became a member of the Accademia di Arti in Florence in 1762. But it was Rome where she had made multiple visits in the early 1760s that truly opened up the world for her. At the age of only 21, she was fortunate enough to be awarded a private studio in the gallery of an Italian duke, an unimaginable privilege for any artist, let alone a female one. Not long after moving to Rome, she befriended Johann Winkelmann, one of the founders of the modern art history discipline and one of the most learned scholars of Greek and Roman art during this time period. And as we'll see in Kaufmann's paintings themselves, Winkelmann's views of the projected path of 18th century European art was particularly influential to the young artist's professional development. Central to Winkelmann's beliefs was the notion that the aesthetics of ancient Greek and Roman art were superior to all others. In his mind, artists of the 18th century had become far too imitative in their practices, and it was in their best interests to revert back to what he believed was, quote, fine art. As he noted succinctly, quote, There is but one way for the moderns to become great and perhaps unequaled. I mean by imitating the ancient, especially the Greek arts, unquote. Attempting to become great herself, Angelica heeded this advice, adjusting her technique and, as author Claire O'Keefe noted in an early 1950s article about the newly celebrated artist, Kaufman, quote, eradicated her youthful faults, unquote, to achieve a new aesthetic, one that followed in the popular style of neoclassicism. The name neoclassicism basically says what it's all about. The new classics. A modern look back at the basics of Greco-Roman art, style, architecture, and so forth. And like many art movements, this one began in direct opposition to the movement that came before it. In this case, the flowery, decorative, and excessively ornamental Baroque and Rococo styles of art. Those were too overblown, too gaudy, some believed. And so returning to something more solemn and stripped down was the way to go. It was also a wonderful mirror, politically and culturally speaking, to what was happening in Europe prior to the French Revolution at the end of the century, as influential speakers began looking back towards classic treatises to inform their own words and actions. The rise of neoclassicism was also helped in part by the simultaneous rise in something else big, tourism. It was all the rage during this time for the wealthy and the privileged, as well as art students, to make what was then called the Grand Tour, traveling through Europe, but predominantly through Italy and France, with occasional offshoots into Switzerland, Austria, and Germany, and sometimes Holland. The biggest draws were due to the newly founded study of archeology. span And seeing the great ruins of ancient civilizations was the thing to do. And there was no better place to do it than Rome. One of the great perks of the Grand Tour for many artists living in Rome, Florence, Venice, and elsewhere, was that the tourists, and yes, that's where we get the term today from the Grand Tour, They wanted access to souvenirs to take home to remember their trip, and probably something to brag about a little in the process. So artists, then, were flooded with customers seeking great grand tour-inspired art. And what most tourists were enamored of was neoclassicism, something that reflected the aesthetics and ideals that they discovered during their tour of the great sites of the past. Angelica Kaufman was perfectly centered in Rome for all of this to happen. By the time she was 25, Angelica had reached fame of an incredible height. She was exhaustively sought out by hundreds of wealthy patrons from all over the European continent wishing to have their portrait painted by the great Angelica Kaufman or to purchase one of her own neoclassical scenes. And though the talent was the crux of her popularity, it wasn't the only thing that made her a star. Like Elizabeth Vigée Le Brun, who followed in her footsteps, Angelica Kaufman was a beauty, charming and magnetic. People loved to be around her, and it certainly didn't hurt that she could communicate in so many different languages. She was especially strong in English, which worked to her advantage as throngs of wealthy patrons, many of whom were from England, traveled through Rome on their grand tours. One English patron in particular, a woman known as Lady Wentworth, made an immense impact on Angelica's career. In her book Miss Angel, the art and world of Angelica Kaufman, 18th century icon, Author Angelica Godden describes Lady Wentworth as a, quote, self-styled diplomat's wife who decided to be Angelica's patron and chaperone, unquote. This woman intended to make Angelica, another young woman, her protege. And to do that, she believed it was necessary to relocate the young artist to London. And that's coming up next, right after this break. Most of us are sticking close to home for the time being, so if you haven't signed up for The Great Courses Plus yet, now is the time to do it. I love The Great Courses Plus because it allows me to keep engaged with the world and to learn something new, all from the comfort of my own home. With thousands of lectures from the world's best professors and experts, The Great Courses Plus is a great way for everyone to stay informed and connected. Right now, for example, you can better understand our current situation with reliable, fact-based courses, like An Introduction to Infectious Diseases, to learn about viruses, vaccines, and disease transmission. There's also Money in Banking, What Everyone Should Know, which is a course that will help you contextualize the current stock market. Or what about Fighting Misinformation, Digital Media Literacy, which will help us all interpret fact from fiction in the news. Or, of course, you can keep the kids learning about math, science, and history while they're out of school. I know that this is something that I will be relying upon in the coming weeks. And, of course, this is also a great time to pick up a new hobby like gardening, yoga, cooking, or to speak a new language. And with the Great Courses Plus app, you can listen or watch at any time, so you don't have to be stuck at your computer. You can access the Great Courses Plus through your phone, your tablet, or your internet-connected TV. So now is the perfect time to start. The Great Courses Plus is giving my listeners this wonderful offer, a free trial. And then it's only $10 a month when you sign up for a quarterly plan. Find all the details at thegreatcoursesplus.com art. Remember, that's thegreatcoursesplus.com art. If you're sick of crazy workout programs and diets that don't work or aren't sustainable, but you do want to lose your extra weight once and for all, listen up. The scientifically proven secret to permanent weight loss is to reprogram your body to want to be thin and fit. When your body wants you to be thin, you have fewer cravings, you naturally eat less food, and you feel more satisfied. There is a scientific method to reprogramming your body to want to be lean. John Gabriel used this method back in 2004 to lose over 200 pounds and kept it off. Since then, he has helped tens of thousands of people just like you and I to get down to our ideal body weights and stay that way. If you're ready to lose the weight once and for all without restrictive dieting, I recommend checking on John's proven program, the 12-week total transformation experience. In just 12 weeks, you can completely reprogram your body. Check it out now at totaltransformationclass.com art. That's totaltransformationclass.com art. Welcome back to Art Curious. If your patron thinks you need to move to London to make it big, then that's what you're gonna do, right? So under the suggestion of Lady Wentworth, Angelica Kaufman did just that. She left Rome for London on June 22nd, 1766, and it worked for her. She ended up remaining in London for the next 14 years. During the first few months of her stay, she lived in Lady Wentworth's home, located in central London. Given this in the center of everything location and combined with Lady Wentworth's high social status and Angelica Kaufman's own famed reputation as a grand tour superstar, wealthy patrons belonging to London's elite were already lined up at her newly opened studio doors. In the famous words of one London engraver, quote, the whole world is Angelica mad, unquote. Soon her quarters in Lady Wentworth's home became too cramped and so she moved into the home of a surgeon living nearby. This was common for Angelica throughout her first years in London. In an effort to find studio space that was large and comfortable enough to meet her high demand, she moved around the city quite frequently, oftentimes staying in the homes of friends or contacts for months at a time. Eventually, she secured enough funds to finally buy her own house in Golden Square. One year after her move to England, Angelica met and married a man who went by the name of Count Frederick de Horn. Intrigued by his perceived talent, appearance, and supposed cultural literacy, the two hastily wed in secret. Skeptical of the Count's true identity, Angelica's father was determined to reveal the truth regarding his new son-in-law. What was supposed to be a lifelong marriage turned into a dramatic disaster for Angelica and her family, as Claire O'Keefe mentions in her 1954 article. Old Mr. Kaufman's revenge was to have Horn investigated and to reveal him as an imposter, in reality, a scoundrel called Brandt, ex-valet of the real count, and worst of all, a bigamist. With threats of public exposure and attempts at abduction, Brandt blackmailed the Kaufmans and his eventual disappearance was brought through with an enormous bribe. Angelica's mock marriage was, it is true, secret, but it was the subject of much conjecture and gossip intensified by the real Count's arrival in London, added to which all her savings were spent and she was forced to work as never before. For several years, her unhappiness is reflected in faulty, even feverish, painting, Though this was, to say the least, a trying time for Angelica, the following year, 1768, brought great fortune for her. First, she was nominated by fellow portraitist and dear friend, Sir Joshua Reynolds, to be one of the founding members of the British Royal Academy, the country's independent, artist-run, and artist-focused school and exhibition arena. Angelica would indeed go on to become one of the 34 founding members of the Academy and one of the only two women founders. The Academy would end up being the place where she would go on to exhibit many of her paintings for the rest of her life. And although Angelica was best known for her portraits during her lifetime, most of the works she exhibited to the Academy depicted events from both ancient and modern history. And it is these works that she is perhaps best known for today, art historically speaking. Take for example one of the most well-known of Angelica Kaufman's paintings, a later work from about 1785 that I first learned about in an art history class in college a painting called Cornelia, Mother of the Gracchi, pointing to her children as her treasures. Which we'll just call Cornelia, Mother of the Gracchi. Now, a little backstory. Cornelia was a real woman, a virtuous and cultured woman who lived during the second century BCE and one who was praised during her own time and far after into that neoclassical period as the ideal mother. Kaufman's painting shows Cornelia welcoming a visitor, a wealthy woman, into her home And when the visitor pulls out examples of her luxurious jewelry all golden and dripping with precious stones, Cornelia has an amazing comeback. She gestures to her children, presenting them as her greatest treasures. And I gotta tell you, the shamed look on the visitor's face is worth the price of admission for this painting. And overall, it's a perfect example of the kind of neoclassical history painting that showcases what Angelica Kaufman is all about presenting women from neoclassical mythology or history, women as the subjects and heroes of their own stories. And in a small way, Kaufman's painting is kind of subversive, so bear with me here. Cornelia's sons, Tiberius and Gaius Gracchus, grew up to become famed politicians in ancient Rome, known for their social reform and commitment to the everyday people of that ancient city. But instead of painting portraits or representations of Tiberius or Gaius during their adult heights, she portrays them here as young boys, molded in their morals by none other than their own exemplary mother. As art historian Meredith Martin notes, such paintings, quote, provide the audience with a different means of experiencing history and its representations, playing a significant role in reshaping 18th century European society's attitudes towards creativity, selfhood, and gender identity." Things didn't slow down for Angelica once the 1770s dawned. In the fall of 1771, Angelica was commissioned by the Viceroy of Ireland, a man named Lord Townsend, to paint his portrait and invited her to do so in Dublin. During her six-month stay in Ireland, she received an overwhelming amount of commissions to paint several other portraits of Ireland's nobility. Additionally, she prepared the designs for a number of decorative works on ceilings, door panels, tables, and mantelpieces. Although historical records will often attribute these works to Angelica alone, it is highly unlikely that she was able to complete all of them during such a short amount of time. But even if completed with additional assistance of spades of apprentices, it's still an awesome feat. Being so highly sought after in portraiture, history painting, and the decorative arts, When she returned to London the following year, she even expanded her practice to etching and engraving, creating a total of 44 plates. This woman could do it all. Angelica Kaufman's career slowed down a little bit in the latter part of the 1770s and into the 1780s. Upon her return to England after her time spent in Ireland, her popularity had waned with the emergence of a changing population and new artistic and cultural vogues. But things personally looked great for her. In 1781, she married a Venetian painter named Antonio Zucchi and left London with her new husband and her father, moving back once again to her father's hometown, Schwarzenberg. Papa Kaufmann died a year later, and after his death, Italy was calling once again. So Angelica and Antonio moved to Naples, where they originally intended to settle. But her heart was, as always, in Rome, the location she called her spiritual home. And because happy wife equals happy life, the artists moved to the Eternal City. And just as she always had, Angelica Kaufman was met with a booming clientele, comprised of visitors, art galleries, and reigning monarchs. Her knack for social influence had not been lost, and once again, she became one of, if not the most popular artists in all of Rome. And it was there that she remained for the rest of her life. Though her final years were tainted by the inevitable gloom of both the French Revolution and the Reign of Terror to follow, she managed to somehow produce some of the best work during this time, like Cornelia, mother of the Gracchi. After her death in 1807, she was still seen as an indomitable force, so much so that John Constable, one of the stars of episode 36 of Art Curious, once proclaimed that no progress could be made in the world of art until Angelica Kaufman's influence was forgotten. unfortunately forgotten it was for a long time outside of the realm of a few art historical scholars. But she never went away, of course. Thankfully, with the wave of feminist rediscovery and reattribution of art in the 1970s, Angelica Kaufman began to shine brightly again thanks to the work of pioneering historians like the late, great Linda Nochlin and the original riot girls of art, the Guerrilla Girls. Now, she's one of the most celebrated artists of the neoclassical age, and let's make sure that she stays in that lauded sphere because she certainly deserves it, not only in her time, but in ours too. Thank you for listening to the Art Curious podcast. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by me, Jennifer Dassel, with additional writing and research help by Adria Gunter. Our theme music is by Alex Davis at AlexDavisMusic.com. Our logo is by Dave Rainey at daverainydesign.com. And social media help is by Emily Crockett and Caroline Holler. Audio production services are provided by Kabunki, the silliest name in superb podcasts and video. Let them help you too at K-A-B-O-O-N-K-I dot com. The Art Curious Podcast is sponsored primarily by Anchor Light. AnchorLight is a creative space founded with the intent of fostering artists, designers, and craftspeople at varying stages of their development. Home to artist studios, residency opportunities, and exhibition space, AnchorLight encourages mentorship and the cross-pollination of skills among creatives in the triangle. Please visit anchorlightraleigh.com. The Art Curious Podcast is also fiscally sponsored by VAE Raleigh, a 501c3 nonprofit creativity incubator. We are a fully independent podcast, and so we rely on sponsors, advertisers, and donations to help keep us going. So if you have the means, please consider giving a one-time donation of $10 to help us out, and thank you for your kindness. You can help our show as well by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen, because it makes a huge difference, and it helps new listeners to tune in. For more details about our show, including the image mentioned in the episode today, please visit our website, artcuriouspodcast.com. We are also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at ArtCuriousPod. Check back in two weeks as we continue to explore the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history.